This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Alright guys, welcome back to another episode of Chasing Tales Outdoors. If this is your first time listening, my name is Walt and I'm your host. And this podcast is dedicated to one thing and one thing only. Encouraging you, motivating you to get outside and enjoy the outdoors through storytelling, interesting adventures that we have found and, and, and been told about. And we bring those guests on the show and they share those perspectives and we have a good time doing it. And I don't do it alone by myself. I have got a killer, a stone cold killer of a co-host chase on the other side of Florida. Buddy, how are you tonight? Oh, Walter, I am doing great, man. I'm so <laughs> glad that this hunting season started. Like I said, I've got a kill oh under my, my belt, dude. And then to top it all off, I went hunting the other morning, and I saw probably the biggest buck I've ever seen during archery season <laughs> the other morning. He was at 100, and I, th- I figured he was at 120 yards. Um, I kind of saw him walking through the woods. He stepped out in this opening, and, I mean, I had the binos ready. I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to uh, get a shot at him at 120 yards, and I was just hoping that maybe he would come my way. He did kind of <laughs> look my way. He, like, gave me just a glimmer of hope, and then he took it away when he stepped, <laughs> when he just kept on going into the woods. <laughs> but he was an absolute giant of a deer. I, I was just awestruck, mesmerized by this deer, and just couldn't believe that I had laid eyes on this beast uh, during archery season. So, oh, who man. knows? Um, I, he stepped out 10 yards too far for you, huh? Yeah, yeah, just just 10. Like, <laughs> I, I cut it off at 110 yards, man. Anything past 110, I will not take. It's just That's just that's just what kind of hunter I am. <laughs> well, that's how you got the nickname Ice Man. It wouldn't have sure. mattered anyways because it would have been a split second. I would have literally had to draw my bow and take the shot within like milliseconds uh, of, of all that happening. And you know when you get awestruck by a deer, like you're just like your jaw drops for a second and you have to just kind of like shake yourself to be like, is this real? 
Um, so yeah. <laughs> he was a big deer. We may have we may have had this deer on camera at some point during the summer. I'm not quite sure. But yeah. oh my gosh, he was a giant. So it was just good. It was just good to see something like that in the woods in Florida. Um, not necessarily. I mean, it would, I'd love to take something that big, but my goodness, just even yeah. seeing that lo- roaming around, it kind of gives you like motivation for this. You're like, oh my gosh, there is a giant lurking in this area. <laughs> I've never, like I said, just because you don't have something on trail camera doesn't mean that they're yeah. not out there cruising around. And I and I have seen, we've been seeing a little bit of rut activity in my area too. So my father-in-law seen some decent bucks chasing does. Uh, I've seen a buck with a doe. My buddy's seen. So it's been kind of weird uh, start to the season. So we'll see, and then I've got my my quota hunt lined up for this weekend. So it's all deer all the time right now. <laughs> well, I'm I'm still envious of you because I haven't gotten into the into the uh, the outdoors myself. However, a bit of good news: I did draw two more really good quota tags for this year. So that leaves me with seven known quota tags for this season, which is absurd. Woo! And, yeah, buddy, uh, I'm looking forward to we, that. Might yeah, save a tag well, or two. Well, one of those one of those is a, a late February or mid February uh, rut hunt over on in Pen- near Pensacola. So you're gonna have to jump in the truck, meet me halfway, and I'll take the rest of the way, and we're gonna go after some some bucks over, uh, you know, towards when everybody else is sitting there upset that deer season's over. We're gonna be chasing deer during the rut. Heck yeah, man! Be a little uh, Valentine's <laughs> date for us. Sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Well, on that note, it's time that we thank the people that make this podcast possible. First, Tethered. Guys, if you're not in a saddle by this point, you probably ordered one and you only got about a week or two to wait. But in the event you haven't, what are you waiting for? It is hands down the revolutionary way to hunt whitetails now. I mean, Chase did it this year. He's a believer. He got a buck this year that he wouldn't have been able to even pursue had he not had a saddle. And we talked about that in the last episode. So if this is the first time you're hearing us, jump over one episode. I'll forgive you. Press pause. Jump back one episode and go listen to how that saddle made the difference for him. It's not an exaggeration when we say that that, that his big buck from opening day uh, was made possible via the saddle. So www.tethernation.com. Give them some love. Let them know that we sent you that way. And uh, let us know if you got any questions or, or, or about saddle hunting. We'd be glad to uh, refer you to the people that know what they're talking about. It's not too late to jump on the Predator Platform giveaway that we are giving to the to the Patreon subscribers of this show. If you, if you aren't familiar with what Patreon is, if you feel compelled to support this show, if you want to help us get into video gear, if you want to help us travel to do live podcasts and hunts across the Southeast or maybe even to, into the Midwest, who knows? Patreon is a way for you to sign up and support us with monthly donations. And as our way to say thank you, we're giving away a Predator Platform from Tethered. All you have to do is sign up in the month of September, and we're going to give it away in early October so that you've got it to have fun with all deer season long. So www.patreon.com forward slash Chasing Tales Outdoors. I think that kind of sums up the business and what we've got to say on the front end. This is an awesome episode that we've recorded with a perspective that we've genuinely never had on the show before. Chase, uh, you, you found this fellow, Ryan, and he turned out to be an awesome guest. I'm, I'm glad that you were able to, to meet up with him and get this lined up. Yeah, man, no doubt. I, I kind of the way I met him or got in contact with him was through a coworker uh, who was good friends with him, and they had kind of swapped hunts. Like he came down here with the gator hunt, and he went up there on a deer hunt. They became good friends. 
I started talking a little bit about the podcast to one of my buddies. He's like, hey, man, you should have my buddy Ryan on. He slays big bucks in Indiana. He's a guide. And I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. We hadn't had anybody on that I can think of from Indiana. So I was like, Let, let's get him on the show, and hopefully he can talk about uh, some of that stuff. And, guys, with that, let's get on to the episode. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. On this episode, I've got a big buck slayer from the Hoosier State. He also helps put people on the their buck of a lifetime. I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Mr. Ryan Roberts. How are you doing, Ryan? Good. Thanks for having me. Good, man. Good. Uh, what you been up to? I'll just uh, trying to get prepped for the youth hunt we got coming up this weekend, but fine-tuning things and getting blinds set up, getting ready for the kids. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, before we get started, why don't you give a little background about yourself and maybe talk about how you got into hunting? All right. Uh, I guess I don't know. I just kind of had an interest in it, uh, I don't know, starting around 10. And uh was fortunate to live on a good piece of ground and kind of got going with my dad a little bit on it. And took a matter of a few years before I got cut loose. And it's been uh, one of my biggest passions still to date. I don't think there's anything uh, better than what God's provided us with. Okay, so how old were you when you started hunting? Uh, I got my first deer when I was 11. Okay, nice. And was that was that in Indiana? Yeah, that was on family ground I grew up on. Okay, have you always lived in Indiana? Yeah, I've never lived uh, anywhere but right here where I'm at. Okay, uh, well, what do you do for what do you do for a living? Most of the time, I'm a carpenter. But uh, wintertime, I'm a, I'm a hunting guide. Okay, so you, you little little dual jobs there. Uh, that's awesome. Okay, well, I brought you, or Walter and I brought you on the podcast uh, because we were kind of interested in the uh, hunting in Indiana. Uh, neither one of us has ever hunted in Indiana, so we were hoping that you could kind of give us a little bit of uh, like background on hunting in Indiana. Uh, maybe you could talk about your guide business a little bit. And also, I know that you hunting in Indiana, they have a rifle season, uh, and you get to take some long range shots and you've been able to do that. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. So first let's just break down, uh, Indiana hunting in Indiana. What, what's that like? I love it. Um, you know, you have, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have, uh, every a good variety. We've got a, a good variety of, uh, lands. I mean, everything from hilly wooded timber to wide open farmlands, uh, you know, early October, you can have temperatures in the 90s, and December, you might have low zero temperatures. It's just uh, definitely get a variety of everything as far as whitetail hunting goes. Okay. Uh, what are what are the bag limits in Indiana? Uh, this year, they knocked our, our doe quota down, which I'm thankful that they did that. Um, most counties, you can take two does in. Some counties, you can take one. Uh, you get one buck a year. Uh, statewide per person so uh, don't harvest a whole lot of deer like it used to be when I was kids there was I mean it wasn't uh, uncommon for people to legally have been able to kill eight to ten deer a year okay so definitely change things for the better around here right uh, how how's Indiana as a whole as far as the amount of hunters is there is there a lot of hunters or average or what do you think about that I would, I'm not sure where we stand nationwide on that. Like, I know Michigan used to have more hunters per capita than I think any other state in the country, but um, 
I guess if you look all the way across the board, I'd say we're probably not we're not high uh, compared to some other states, but I'd say pretty well in the middle as far as the amount of people that hunt versus other states. Okay, and do what's the public land like in Indiana? Is there is there a good opportunity for public land hunting mixed with private? Yeah, we've got some good public land. Uh, actually, we've got our private property, one of our best ones, adjoins public land, and uh, we kill a lot of good deer off that land, and the, the public lands can produce pretty good, too. Uh, just south of where I'm at, uh, Liberty, Indiana, uh, you have Brookville. There's a 18-mile-long reservoir there that hosts, uh, I think we've got 14 or 15,000 acres of public huntable land right there all in one chunk. Oh, wow. Wow. It's, it's pretty rugged ground where you get into a lot of, uh, you know, big hills, valleys, big timber, little, not a whole lot of agriculture. So there are, there's places that those deer get a chance to, to hide. I mean, there's places that hunters don't get to. It's just too rough and people don't put in the, the efforts. So it uh, allows some deer to get big and mature on those public lands. Okay. What is, uh, what, what is the, the expectation for a lot of Indiana hunters? You know, down here we're, we're pretty thrilled if we can get on a, especially for public land, somewhere between like a 60 to 85 inch buck, you know, you've really done something well for Indiana. You know, you, I don't think you hear so much uh, about big bucks, but I'm sure you've got your fair share. What's the, what's the expectation going into a season for you? Um, on average, uh, 140, I would say is kind of what we average as far as harvesting. Um, <laughs> what you see on the, uh, uh, it's not uncommon. 180s, 190s. Uh, I've got a 182 in the house. I mean, if somebody kills something over 180, it's it's a big deal. Um, but a lot of 140s get taken. So plenty of good deer. Yeah, I would say our age structure for most of these areas would probably be three and a half on those bucks. Okay, so as far so as as far as that average goes. So how do you how do y'all how do you think that that uh, comes to be if you've got a bunch of hunters and a rifle season, which is kind of unique for, for the Midwest? Well, when I was a kid, we were we were allowed to harvest two bucks. And everybody, pretty much everybody, you'd shoot the first buck you saw with your bow and then know that you were going to try for something better with, with a shotgun or muzzleloader because we didn't have a rifle now. Um, but years ago, they did away with that. And once that changed, I, it took a matter of two or three years to really notice a difference like and the quality of the bucks because now guys are being so much more selective not to mention taking one less deer one less buck um in today's world i think a lot more people are getting on the the management side of it and realizing what we can have as a state so you have a lot of hunters that are are more educated than they've ever been and a little more selective i think there's a lot of factors that play into that you know with the food plots and Minerals and supplemental feeding, stuff that people never used to do, it's pretty common anymore. Interesting. I guess you would say we, the whole, I mean, the majority of the state's kind of getting on board with the management concept of it. And we're all still hunters. We still harvest deer and feed our families. And that's, that's, sure. that's always going to be a staple for hunters in this area, just like anywhere else. But uh, there's no reason you can't do both. And I think people are starting to realize that. Interesting. Right. So that's kind of your generation that's been leading that, it sounds like. It was a lot different when I was a kid than it is now. That's for sure. <laughs> now, if it was brown, it was down. That's how that's how most of the hunting went. And if you showed up at the check-in place with a 130-inch deer, everybody was oohing and on and leaning over the side of your truck. And now it's just another deer. <laughs> right. 
sounds like that's what a two and a half or three year old. Yeah, I would say most two and a halfs are between one fifteen, one twenty five, one thirty. Yeah, them. Wow, we've got a two and a half on camera this year. That's uh, pushing one fifty. Oh my gosh, he's <laughs> he's got different genetics. There, you have those deer every once in a while that are capable of reaching two hundred plus inches, and you can pick those out from most of the deer that can't or aren't, right. ne- aren't necessarily as likely to. You know, sure. Now, what was he as a one and a half year old? Then, if he was a one fifty at two and a half. I don't know. I don't think I had pictures of him. If I did, he didn't stand out enough to to know. I mean, he could have went from, you know, a, a decent little six-point, year-and-a-half-old deer to he's a mainframe 10 with matching stickers on his G2s now, and he's got an extra point on his right beam at, at two-and-a-half. Wow. Now, is it the? are you going off just body size and everything to t- kind of determine that? Yeah, the deer looks like he's he's a baby. Especially when you see him in comparison with a, a deer that's what looks to be a five and a half standing next to him in a game camera picture, it's pretty clear. Okay, what's a what's a good size body for a, bu- a buck in Indiana? Uh, we have a lot of deer at field dress two twenty two fifteen. God, um, <laughs> usually once they hit three like three and a half year old deer, are typically over two hundred pounds field dress. Okay. Uh, well, what about out-of-state guys? If somebody wants to come, come hunt Indiana, is there anything they have to do? They have to put in for a permit, or is it just over-the-counter? It's over-the-counter. Um, non-resident, duck tag, bow, you know, any archery, which we have, crossbow and bow, um, muzzleloader, firearms. It's all uh, 150 bucks for buck tag, over-the-counter. Oh, wow. Does that include a doe tag wow. as well? No, doe tags are separate. Okay. We pers- I don't allow anybody to harvest does, but um, but the youth. But right. we have a we're starting to see a recovering number with the does, but we still have some work to do. It's not too bad. You said it was a hundred and forty bucks for a buck tag. One fifty. One fifty. Okay. Wow. That's that's pretty good. That's that's less than a lot of the uh, the other states around there. I mean, you hear a lot about Illinois, Iowa. Ohio, in, then you, you hear some about Indiana, but I mean, I, it's not like I hear Indiana as much as some of those other states. Uh, what are the what what are the deer numbers like? Or is is it good numbers of deer compared to some of those other states? I would say we're right there with most states. I mean, you have your pockets, just like anywhere that you know, through whatever reason, management, just reproduction factors that have a higher deer density than others. Um, overall, yeah, I'll say we compare with most states. Okay. And that is, does Indiana, does it have, does, has EHD or CWD, any of those hit Indiana? I know some of the southern counties, we're about in the central, east central part. Um, some of the southern counties in the state got hit pretty hard a while back. Um, I've heard of a couple cases, a few counties over from where we're at, but. We're fortunate to not see it like some of the Wisconsin and some of the other states have in the past. And uh, it's just one of those things don't even really like talk about. <laughs> right. <laughs> don't, don't, don't mention it again, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't don't put that bad mojo on me, well, Ricky Bobby. The, 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 the thing is, is like they keep – like FWC around here keeps talking about CWD 
and things like that, yeah. but we don't ever see it. Like I've, I've never seen it. I don't know anybody hunting here that has, have, do you know of any cases? I don't think there's been any cases of CWD in Florida. There has not been one, no. but they keep no, harping on it hard. And I'm just like, okay, are we supposed yeah. to be expecting something down the line here? Or they're just trying to stop it from happening because they see what it does to some of these other States. Um, I'm not sure, but you're right. It is scary to think about. You're like, oh man, I don't want to have to go to checkpoints and check my deer in before I can eat it or anything like that. So I wasn't trying to throw any bad mojo your way. I was just, <laughs> just trying to get, <laughs> just trying to get the facts. I think it's a pretty common subject of concern with, with hunters anymore. And it is, a, it's a real problem. It exists, but, uh, uh we're, we've been fortunate. You know, I, I've spent my entire life here in the woods and to this date, I cannot say that I've ever found a whitetail that I thought CWD, EHD, anything like that was related to what happened. Okay. I know guys that have, uh, there's a guy not too far from me two years ago. He, uh, he found several one eighties dead. I think they had one over 200 that was dead. Oh, Oh, it, but it was one of them. Again, it was just an isolated little pocket, uh, EHD. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's had that area's had that problem since. Okay. Did that area have like a big drought or something that year? Yeah, of course. It's, you know, it's related to that, but I don't know. Temperatures, you know, the amount of eggs that are available. I mean, I guess everything has to line up. I don't know. Mother Nature has its own way of sorting things out sometimes. Right. Whether we like it or not. (laughs) Yeah, I think sometimes we forget that um, for sure. Okay, well, let's see here. I had a thought and I was going to say it. It was something about the bucks and indiana but now uh, you got anything walter that you want to ask them well yeah i think you know one of the things that i've been told about indiana that seems kind of contrary to what you're talking about is that the public land isn't uh, uh i've been told frankly that it's not very good and i think maybe some people get kind of spoiled in places um is it is it one of those things where there's enough public land where everybody doesn't feel like they're on top of each other or um Maybe maybe dispel some of those notions so that everybody floods your state. Well, there are places that like, <laughs> they get packed. Um, yeah. But you might go 10 miles down the road, and there's a section that hasn't been hunted all year. It just there seems to be a lot of the people come out of town, first-time hunters, beginners, you know, people just trying to enjoy uh-huh. it like we do, and that's their place to go. It's the first place they come to. It's where their friend went. You know, that gets passed along so fast of so-and-so killed a good deer here. And that, that happens, hell, that happens on public land or private land sometimes. Right. Um, but there are, they're good pockets. There's, there's good spots. Yeah. And I, I've never hunted public land other than what little bit I did as a kid here locally. Um, I've never been to the public land in other parts of the state. But what we have where we're at, it's, it's not bad. I, I don't hesitate to go shoot a doe if I get a chance. Right. 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 The deer numbers are good. It's just it's, it's hard to hunt. Okay. Yeah. What's well? It sounds like, it sounds like it's one of those places where if you're willing to to work hard, you can carve out success in the state, and that isn't always the case in some places. I mean, I, you put the work in and the time in. Yep. That's yeah. what most of it boils down to. Sure. What What's the What's the terrain like in Indiana? I mean, are are there any hills, or is it all flatland, or uh, what's the terrain? Where we're at, it's if I go a mile north of my house, it is flat, wide open farmland with nothing but fence rows. Most of them are gone anymore. Um, wide open. If I go 
three miles, four miles south, you get into some pretty hilly country. I mean, it's I wouldn't, it's definitely not mountainous, but it's it's rough ground. I mean, I might have two, three hundred foot elevation changes, you know, in a pretty rapid distance. Oh, that's sweet. Um, but you have a good variety. I would say overall, it's pretty flat, especially the whole northern part of the state. Okay. The southern, the southern half, you know, you're getting down close to Kentucky and down that area, it's pretty rugged. Right. Um, well, when is the best time to come to hunt in Kentucky? Or Indiana, why did I say Kentucky? You just said Kentucky. When is the best time to hunt <laughs> Indiana? I mean, is it early season? Rut? When's the rut? Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, funnest time's rut, isn't it? I mean, that's... Oh, yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> That doesn't mean it's the best time to kill a deer. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. See a lot of action. I'd say, like, on our particular farms, that's their buck-to-dough ratio is almost even. So when it's right, you get a crazy amount of activity. Um, okay. Th- that's that's a lot of fun. Uh, me, personally, I like to hunt muzzleloader season. I like it when it's cold. Those deer are doing nothing but bedding and feeding. You got some snow down. They're predictable. Uh, all the big boys slip through rut. They don't get they don't get taken. In that late season, they have to eat. They have to recover, and they're easy to predict. Well, Interesting. I'm a, right. I'm a bow. It, it, go ahead. No, go ahead. Buddy. I just I'm a bow hunter at heart, so of course I love October. Right. With the nice fall change and everything, that's a beautiful time of year to be out. It seems like there's a a pattern that occurs late season that I think only now we hear a lot of talking about it and it's almost like a summertime style of pattern where late season they're moving predictably like they would during the summertime when you can obviously glass them on fields do you feel like that's a a fair comparison oh absolutely that's they're predictable they're they're gonna sleep they're gonna eat you gotta think about the energy that they expelled on right they have to recover from that with food and and right they find a nice south facing sunny hillside when the weather's cold lay in the sun and eat you know they don't, they're not going to travel far from a bedding a fooding bedding and feeding area that time of year they're they're bedding up close to sure. food in the sun yeah i was i was listening to a podcast the other day i think it was the meat eater podcast and they were talking about um this guy studies animal weaponry and he talks about how elk and deer darn near put themselves into a state of osteoporosis when they're growing their antlers going into the into deer season and that you can really take you know that obviously correlates to what you're talking about which is their post rut their body fats down and their bodies wore out so they they've got to be trying to pour it on from from somewhere so they have to be a slave to their stomach oh yeah they don't have a choice at that point if they want to survive but our coldest temperatures come in january february so if they don't recover some of that time some of that body mass and what they've lost during rut by the time january rolls around they're in trouble sure so that month of december they are they're putting the feed bags on and they uh if you got standing beans late december that's where the deer are going to (laughs) be they devour them (laughs) right Right. Well, what's the rut like? I mean, is it just, like you mentioned, it's like one-to-one. So is it like all out, you see a bunch of fighting? Are they responsive to a bunch of calls? Um, antlers, grunts, things like that? Yeah, they're pretty responsive. Um, I have real good luck with rut, But uh, it's just like anywhere else. It's it's still 
almost a mystery at times when November 1st, it's hot, it's crazy. Like the deer are going completely mad. November 2nd, where'd they all go? Nothing happens. <laughs> November 4th, it's like, now it's on again. Like what just happened? Why did this happen? And it's, it's like that every year. You might have two or three days that are just completely unbelievable where you see every deer in the woods. A couple of days later, it's not so hot. It's just, uh, you know, weather related. There's a lot of things that are playing a factor in that daytime movement. Okay. Do y'all, I can see that. Do, do y'all see like the lockdown phase or anything up there? Yeah, usually. Sometimes it just kind of trickles where it's, it's not like all the deer are gone. Where they're all locked down, it just it, there's years that it seems like all the does come and heat at once, and there's years it seems like it takes two weeks, three weeks for that process to finish. Uh, okay. Depending on what type of rut we're having, yeah, sometimes you'll see a lockdown period where for a week there's not a deer anywhere; they don't exist. Okay. That do you do you have a plan going into the season like do you just have it sounds like you like to hunt big mature bucks i mean do you have like target bucks on your list that you're like okay i'm hunting these guys and uh, i'm that's what i'm going to focus on or do you just you kind of mix it up say you you kind of do observation sits or what what do you do going into the season a little bit of both run game cameras pretty hard uh, especially going going into august and get a barometer of you know you always have some a few particular bucks that are like really stick out, but uh, I do it to get a barometer of what's the average on this particular piece of land. What's the average on this one? What's the average on this one? And do it that way. Also, I mean, we keep a, a library of all the deer, all the game camera pictures from each farm throughout season. Clients come in, we sit down, we go over the game camera pictures. This is what the real possibilities are. And this is what you have to look at. But it's up to you as far as what you want to do. Okay. Well, well you made a you made a good transition there. I was just about to kind of get into the guiding aspect of it. <laughs> what is what's it like to be a, a guide? Because I know I've kind of guided some people down here on some turkey hunts and stuff like that, and you kind of like, oh man, you got a little pressure on yourself because you're trying to make sure the person coming down gets on the game or animal or whatever they're down here for or up there for. So what's it like being a guide? It's a lot of things. You should ask my wife that. <laughs> <laughs> there was a serious sigh before you, you, you spoke to that. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a lot of things. It's uh, uh, for me, it's my passion. It's what I've wanted to do my entire life. Um, so I deal with a lot of the things that aren't so good about it. Um, it's a lot of work for little to no pay and, <laughs> a, and a whole lot of reward as far as, um, just seeing things come together, you know, building friendships, meeting new people, seeing a plan come together with a food plot, uh, somebody being successful because of that, just all the things that go into it all year long, um, just seeing it unfold in the end and things work uh it, it's it's good things don't work it's not good and <laughs> <laughs> there's there's times that's out of your control you know but uh it's different man it's a different job i said i've been a carpenter my whole life and worked in the construction field and everything's pretty much predictable and just variables involved in it keep it interesting to say the most to say the least right 
Well, I think a lot of people, uh, they're going to this guided service and they're expecting, oh, I'm going to kill a 150 or I got a real good shot, but then it's, it's 100% free range deer. So it's not like the, the guide has any, it's not like it's a canned hunt where there's big high fence and all that stuff where you pretty much got a guarantee or you do have a guarantee of killing something. Uh, I think they kind of forget. It's like, man, this because I've been on a couple of guided hunts and stuff, and I never went in there with the expectation. It's like, oh, I'm going to kill this giant because I know what deer do down where I hunt, and nothing's guaranteed <laughs> in any 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 free range hunt that you go to. So it's kind of it's one of those deals where I know it's tough on you because you're like, okay, there's a big expectation coming here, and I know that you. It sounds like you're putting in a lot of work to kind of make that happen for people. Well, you have to do the work. That's you owe that to your customers, people that are paying you money to come for that experience. You have to put in the work. Um, but I make it real clear, real fast up front that nothing's guaranteed. We hunt hard, do our jobs, you know, we try to do everything right, but there's variables in there that you just can't control. And nothing's guaranteed. Don't if you if you have if say you want to come hunt with me and you say I'm gonna kill I'm gonna come up to kill one eighty, I'm gonna tell you, you need to go somewhere else. <laughs> not, not that right. it's not possible it's possible as, as it, to, to, to spend five days deer hunting and ex, really expect that to happen you're wrong you know even 10 days it, it's just extremely difficult to do and you got to be up front with people about it you know right well you like you mentioned you've you've got a 180 but how many years have you been hunting in indiana i mean how long did it take you to get a 180 <laughs> <laughs> all of them <laughs> right exactly and you're there a hundred percent of the time so uh, you can hunt a hundred percent of the time or pretty close of the season it's not like you're there on five days so there, there's a lot there's a lot of luck and a lot that goes into killing 180 class deer <laughs> yeah well and my chances of that are gone i don't i don't typically hunt much anymore i've got two kids my son loves it my daughter's just getting into it we've got clients to take care of I don't, honestly, I don't care if I ever shoot another deer with antlers in my life. Whoa. I'd like, I love shooting does. Right. I mean, we shoot a couple does a year for, fill the freezer for my family, but I don't know. I would much rather share it with somebody else and do it myself. And I guess in most people's eyes, it makes me weird. I don't know. It's just, uh. Well, I don't, I don't think it makes you weird. I mean, it kind of makes sense if you're, if you, you told us earlier that this, all you wanted to do is be a guide your your whole life then that kind of makes sense is that right. you want to be able to because it's almost kind of like you're you've got a little part of that yourself in, in my eyes because you're the one helping those people get on that deer yeah i love it i mean it's i can and i don't want this to sound wrong but i know if i dedicated my season myself without clients without anything really really good realistic possibilities to go kill a 160 um it shouldn't be a problem but to take a client that doesn't live here, has never been here, and to nail it down and do it in five days, it's different. It's <laughs> right, it's yeah. a lot more complicated, um, <laughs> and that's where I find the joy in it. It's a the challenge. Every bit of it's a challenge. Yeah. What well, What's the What's the name of your business? Wildside Outdoor Adventures. Wildside. That, do you have a website? Oh, I love that, dude. <laughs> what's that? Do you have a website? that people can go to outdoors.com and we're on instagram and facebook okay we don't do a lot of promoting okay well how many hunts a year do you guys put on 
uh, about 30 adult hunts and then usually 10, 10 youth hunts. Okay. And are those spread out like over the bow and gun seasons? Yeah, we do uh, basically groups of eight is usually the way it works out, like beginning of November. Um, I don't book anything usually in October. It's just uh, right. I think you, you, you do more harm than good. You're taking somebody's money and not having as much faith that you can provide and produce. You just, I don't know. It's just, a, it's a rough time of year. You can get on a big one, but it's rough. Um, right. We wait until November. Rut gets started. Everything starts getting moving. And we do November. Two months in November. A hunt in uh, the beginning of December and a hunt in the end of December. Okay. Uh, when when is the when is the rifle season up there? Uh, this year it comes in November sixteenth. Oh wow! It varies by a day or so. It's always like the second third Saturday in uh, November. Okay. Gotcha. Now, what's it like getting enough property? to get all those clients out there. Cause I'm assuming that you have to go out and get properties to make sure if you've got 30 people coming in, they're not just all hunting the same piece. So what all goes into that? That's the biggest challenge with, uh, with what we do always has been. And I don't, it's gotten a little bit easier over the years, but getting property is difficult. I mean, it's any farmland, any, hunting land it's usually somebody's nephew or somebody's cousin or somebody's kid somebody hunts it and that's something we've never tried i don't want to take any land from that's already being used um so getting land that isn't occupied and finding that is a challenge and then finding the right of landowners to work with is a is a challenge in itself <laughs> it's it's difficult to get the land and it's, I wouldn't have what I have if I hadn't lived here my entire life and built good relationships with the farmers that I grew up bailing hay for and the people in our community, whether it's a school bus driver. You know, it's it's all about building relationships with people. And it's taken – I've been hunting for 30 years now, and it's, it's still growing. You know, it's still building new relationships. And without that, you're not getting land around here. <laughs> right. I can understand. That. So you don't. So you don't network to use any kind of public land. No, we it don't. Seems like you do just exclusively private. Yeah, it's all private. We've got about three thousand acres of private land. Why? Can I ask why you wouldn't use public? Like a lot. I, I know some outfitters do use public in their area. Is that just a control uh, factor for you? Well, you don't want to be sitting in a stand in the morning. It gets daylight, and somebody's sitting next to you. And paying for that experience. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. If, if, if you do, I will hook you up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I've always I've always wondered how they navigate that because I've I've been on several websites and like, oh, we've got ten thousand acres of leased and public land that we can set you up on. It's like, huh? Well, I mean, I guess if you can lease it or lock it down, I don't know. I know. Yeah. I know that there's like you go out west. There's, I'm sure there's a lot of public land elk hunts and stuff that are guided. Um, that's true, but it's different here. You don't have the volume. You don't have yeah. 200,000 acres or a million acres of public land. Right. Um, I, I'm not even sure what the stipulations are on guiding on public land. I don't think you're, I don't think you're allowed to here. They never okay. want to step in that. Huh. They did just this year, actually, uh, for the first time, uh, we have to have uh, guide permits from the state to be able to do what we do. And that's the first time this has ever happened. And, I see the good reasoning in it. Um, you know, if you're charter service, if you're a fishing guide, you have to have a permit to do so. And for right. years as an outfitter, you didn't have to. And it 
kind of evens things out this way. Okay. Well, uh, what what type of accommodations do you have? What what would a person, if they wanted to come do a hunt uh, with your business, uh, what would they expect? Um, the lodge is about, uh, I think it's just under 8,000 square feet. Um, we sleep 17 people. Um, two-acre pond, hot tubs, game room. <laughs> it, it works. It works pretty well. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's a it's a big basically a big pole barn. It's a it's a home. Uh, it works well. It's roomy. It's you know shop area where you can pull the side by side and stuff down to be able to put deer in the cooler. You don't have to be inside inside with any of that, and you're not outside in the cold either. It, it works well. Okay. Do y'all provide meals as well? Yeah, meals, lodging, everything's included. Okay, that's nice. We don't skimp. We don't mess around with meals. We don't skimp or cut corners. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Jeremy <laughs> kind of told me a little bit about that. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I think he just comes up here for the food and drink cold yeah. beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what's what the it price tag like. for that one? I'm just curious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the food and beer. <laughs> Oh man, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, can we can we back up for just a second? I'm curious how did how did carpentry and you inevitably getting into guiding? How did that come come to be? Like how did you how did you balance that transition? Oh, I still am. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, fair enough. I, I work for myself. I, I run a small construction company, so I can provide myself with that time when I need it through through season. Uh, got a couple a couple of my guides are awesome like if i'm working on a job they're on the property uh putting in food plots or adjusting stands or whatever needs to be done so it's a it's definitely a team effort um like okay. guides my wife like all of us it's it's been a real tough thing to handle uh you know getting started with the amount of work i had to do at my normal job to even begin to try and start this um and and trying to do both and not being real profitable um it's a struggle but uh, still transitioning. I always say, I always say next year, next year, <laughs> next year, <laughs> next year, next year, no more hammers and nails. Next year, <laughs> right? <laughs> but ultimate, ultimately, oh, that, that's all dependent on land. I don't get more land, we yeah. can't grow as a business. That's just that's how it works. Sure. And we uh, yeah. keep pressure to a minimum. You know, we're hunting three thousand acres, thirty people realistic 60 percent success rate in that area when I mean, you're talking 20 deer killed a year on 3,000 acres and i want to make sure that we keep keep it like that so that we can continue to get better and not harvest too many deer you know every year our maturity level uh the quality of our bucks that are taken every single year has been better and better over the last five six years so that's the the plan to keep that going if we can add more land we're still moving in the right direction Okay. Well, 60% seems like a pretty decent number to me. Uh, I don't know what like a normal guide service would be, but I, I would say two out of three uh, is a pretty good number or ain't bad as they say. But um, that, that, that sounds like a, a, what, what type, what quality are these guys killed? Like what's an average buck killed on your uh, guided hunts? 140 area is usually average. Okay. Uh, well, that's pretty good. We have a lot of 130s, a lot of 140s. Um, we want to, next year, I really want to move into doing 10 day hunts. And let me get your guys' thoughts on this. Um, I want to do it for multiple reasons. Um, we have less hunters per season. 
We have less deer being killed. We have a higher success rate. And in the grand scheme of things, I would think that most people on a five-day hunt would take that 140 that was three years old that wasn't five or six. Um, they would take that deer on that five-day, but maybe really think about on that 10-day, kind of driving that, that reasoning of letting deer get mature and improving our deer herd in that aspect while still being able to grow as a business. But I also know that 10 day hunts don't fit into everybody's schedule. Right. Yeah. I can see, I mean, I've been on a, a seven day hunt um, and I felt almost kind of like, well, it was like at the end, I was like, Oh, maybe that's not enough. I mean, I had a couple of opportunities, but just, way things work out with bow hunting i mean you know how that is sometimes you get like one or two opportunities and oh they're behind a tree at 20 yards and walk away and you never have a shot uh at the animal um but i mean 10 days i mean you would think that that's kind of a realistic type thing to be able to get something done and it might because i know if i'm hunting five days like you said if i see a 140 class buck come out i'm from florida there's a good chance i'm taking that 140 class buck because i'm not the chance of me seeing something like that or whatever, one in a million in Florida, uh, as compared to, to where you're at. So uh, it almost kind of would be like maybe where the hunters are from. Cause I mean, a lot of guys would love to take 140 class buck, whether it be five days or 10 days. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Jump piggybacking on that. I think it also depends on the skill set of the, of the outdoorsman, you know, like I've never killed anything remotely close to 140. So you could put me out there for ten days. If I if a one forty walks out, he's dying. I mean, that's, that's just, I'm just being completely frank with you, right? Like, like that, that's just that's just me. And you know, maybe the next year when I come out, if I come out and you're like, okay, Walter, we talked about this on the podcast. We've got some really good deer here. I'd probably hold off. But right. the first, no matter where I am in life, the first one forty that walks out, I'm flinging an arrow, at it, and I don't think the, day, the days the days would change that. Right? Yeah. I mean, unless. I mean, I know you have, like I said, you got pictures and stuff that you can show clients and stuff like that. And it'd be kind of like, okay, we got a bunch of 140s, but then we also have this class of deer as well. Um, it would kind of be like, okay, well, maybe. But like I said, if you hadn't ever shot anything 140, then you're probably not going to pass on that 140 on even like the first five <laughs> seconds of the hunt. You'd be like, eh. But, right. but you do have guys. I know my father-in-law, he went with me on one of the hunts. And, I mean, he had killed a ton of like 140 class bucks. Um, but never with his bow. I mean, he had gone on a bunch of rifle hunts and stuff like that where he'd killed those 140, 150s, been up to Canada a bunch of times, killed some bigger bucks. But with his bow, he in Florida, I mean, he had never killed anything over 100 inches with his bow. And he, when we, we went to Illinois, and he passed on a legitimate 100 and probably 40-something inch 10-point on the first day because he's like, no, nah, I'm in Illinois, and I didn't come to Illinois to kill a 140 class. I came to kill a giant or 160 or a 170. So there are people out there that are willing to to pass on those deer. I just think it depends on the clients is what it kind of yeah, boils down definitely. to. Definitely. But I'll also say this, if I'm booking a 10-day hunt, I'm it's probably I probably have a different mindset as well, Chase. Right. Like I I think I'm I think I'm not I'm, I'm out there trying to like lengthen my exposure as much as possible, you know, which kind of leads towards I'm going to try and get the best out of the hunt I can kind of thing. So right. maybe there's some validity to it. Yeah, yeah, because you're probably like, well, if I shoot something on the first day, then I'm done. But, I mean, you are done, and right. you've got a 140-inch buck, which you didn't have. So it kind of goes back right. to that as well. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, like I said, if you can show the quality and the the quality is getting better, is what it sounds like, and it probably would continue to get better if people were passing on them one thirty, one forty class bucks. So I think it would take a little bit of time, and if you you just have to kind of get a little bit of buy in from the people coming in, saying, look, there's mm-hmm. a legitimate chance you could kill a one fifty if you pass on a one forty or a one thirty five or well, something like that. Yeah, and maybe and maybe there's a better way to incentivize it. You know, maybe there's a financial or future trip benefit. Like if you shoot a deer over 160 or 140, you know, the the first day of next year's hunt is on me, kind of thing, or something like that. I'm just throwing the crazy idea out there, but the whole idea being is incentivizing them for some reason to also like do it uh, for immediate gain as well. Besides the deer, you know, because you live in a place where there's a lot of those animals. Right. I mean. We're fortunate to have the possibilities, the genetics, the, the food source. Right. Uh, harsh enough winters to make massive bodies on these animals, but not so harsh that it kills them all. You know, we're, we're in a great climate to grow world-class whitetail. I mean, we already do, and it's a sleeper state. You know, you, you said earlier, you hear a lot about, you know, Illinois and even Ohio, Kentucky, a lot of places other than Indiana, and I'm not real mad about that. <laughs> no. <laughs> but yeah the possibilities are real and be quite honest with you right now i need to grab my binoculars (laughs) Uh Uh because there's a possibility literally (laughs) in front of him i'm looking at 170 (laughs) right now booner (laughs) that's awesome chase would this be the first time that someone has ever scouted while on the podcast I believe so, which is say that's fine yeah. by me. I don't care. Maybe we're getting live. Oh, I don't I don't care. Technically I'm in my backyard. <laughs> okay. Nice. <laughs> Even better. No, I think it's great. But, no, I'm sorry, I got us off track here. Yeah, you're good. Yeah, yeah. You're good. I mean, like I said, I, I like the idea, or maybe you could offer a little bit of both. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I got I kinda have mixed emotions about it. I've can ask several of our hunters and clients and people, you know, that are hunters like we all are and what would you want? And what I'm getting out of it is we would reach a completely different demographic than what we target now as far as a consumer base looking at it. Um, right. We're reaching more of the older retired guys that have the time and the money. Um, kind of – and it's not what I want to go for. I want, I've always been a working-class man and proud of that. And I want, I've always wanted to make sure that we can still be appealing to anybody. You know, you can you can save twenty five hundred bucks in the course of a year, or two years to to have a good trip and to have a good experience. You know, right. it's not it's not uh, it's not unreasonable, and I've always wanted to be able to stay true to that. So changing that to ten day and changing the price, I don't think it necessarily appeal to the same group of people that I've always wanted to. Right, that's true. That's that's my biggest biggest issue with it right now. Yeah. That's, that's the struggle of being a guide. <laughs> there's, a, there's a few of them. <laughs> one one yeah. of the struggles of being a guide is trying to figure that out. It is all worth it when it pans out and you have a successful season. It's very rewarding. Oh yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I'm sure. Do you have a, now? Do you have a lot of first time people coming in, or do you have a bunch of returned clients? What's the makeup of your clients? About seventy five percent is. Like annually is return clients. Uh, you know, guys oh, wow. don't come year after year. It's usually every, like a guy comes hunts this year. He'll probably probably be back. You know, twenty twenty one. It seems to be a every other year thing. But seventy five percent of our clients are return customers. 
Okay, well, that's pretty good then. I mean, that means you're you're put. You must have a good service if you got a lot of return customers. Well, we're family. Um, that's how I met Jeremy. You know, that's right? How I end up on the phone with you guys is yeah. You know, taking good care of people. We ha- we've always put camp first because that is something we can control. We can control what we feed people, whether it's bologna or prime rib. You know, we can control different things that do make a difference in your hunt. Uh, we, we can work as hard as we possibly can all year long to prepare everything just right for the hunting aspect of it. When the time comes, if you come to hunt in November 1st and it's 75, 80 degrees on a full moon, like it's not going to be real easy. Things are going right. to change. But what we can control, we do our best to, to do that. And we eat well. We're family. We we all become friends before the hunt's over. It's it's been like this since I started this nine years ago, and I want to make sure it stays that way. It's that's awesome. it's the experience. That's what that's what camp yeah. that's what camp should be. It's not all about the inches. Everybody wants to kill a big deer. If everybody does, but it doesn't always work that way. That's just the reality of it. So if we can, we make sure we keep camp first, and it's fun. It's a good time. And if it works out after that, great. You know, that's just the reality of all of it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true with any type of business or anything you're running, um, for sure. Okay, well, I think we've kind of covered the, the guides side of it. Uh, I wanted to kind of talk to you because, like I said, Indiana does have that unique rifle season. So it sounds like it's kind of towards the tail end of the rut, maybe, is when the rifle season falls into place. And I was talking to you earlier when we had a conversation on the phone and you had kind of mentioned that you have the ability to take long range shots in Indiana. And you mentioned something. What What's your longest shot on a deer in Indiana? Uh, the furthest one I shot with a gun is right at 400 points last year. Okay. So, so 400 yards. Okay. I, I, in Florida, I mean, it's kind of thick of Florida, but I do have some areas. I mean, I think the farthest shot I've taken was around 325 or something like that, but that's not normal, uh, obviously. Um, but so what goes into planning and prepping to take like a 400 something plus yard shot, uh, when you're out in the woods? Shooting. I mean, it all starts at the, at the shooting bench. Uh, if you don't know your gun, you don't know what your round's doing. You don't have a chance. So shoot your gun. Spending time behind the gun, ranging. Uh, me personally, I make a dope chart for all of my uh, all my mill dots and all my rifles and my scopes. You get range finder. Wind is, you know, that's, of course, that's always one of the hardest variables. Um, just shooting. Shooting, knowing your distance, knowing what your round's doing. Right. Um, well, what kind of gun are you using? <laughs> You're laughing at me. Uh, last year, I shot that deer with my son's uh, Savage uh, Youth Gun, two forty three. <laughs> nice, righteous. <laughs> <laughs> I think a two forty three has decent ballistics. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a, it's a hell, it's a hell round on on whitetails, dude. Oh. That is an incredible round. The right. only downfall to it, uh, it doesn't punch a big enough hole to leave much of a blood trail, but typically there's not much tracking involved. I mean, it's it yeah, right. that chest cavity. It's at such a great speed. It's, it just destroys what's inside. It, it's the shock from it is usually enough. If it's anywhere in the vitals, it's not going far. Okay. All right, now are, are you hunting out of like any special stand or anything like that when you're planning on taking long shots? 
Oh, it's if it's going to be long, it's on the in the ground blind or on something that's on the ground. I mean, I wouldn't want to get in a tree stand with a little bit of wind and some sway and expect that to happen. I mean, most of our shots are less than 200 yards, even with rifles. Right. Um, but yeah, if you're going to stretch it out, you got to be, you know, the closer to the ground that you can get, the better. That's the most stable thing you're ever going to be on. <laughs> right. Yeah. I know I've taken, like I said, some of my longer shots are, they're out of a tripod. So I've got like a good rest. I can get my, my elbow up. The gun's rested real good. Um, and like I said, that you're not affected by the wind or anything like that. You're not swaying. Um, so I, I think that, like I said, that's, that is important. I think it'd be kind of hard to take one out of just a, a tree stand. Um, is because of just the rest factor. Yeah, there always comes that point too, where, you know, ethics of, of what you're doing when you're making that shot. And, you know, what I've always thought and always said that an unethical shot is one that you take that you know you're not capable of taking. One that you take that you have any guess in. Right. So well, that's a good definition. So, I mean, and that makes it, you can't say an ethical shot with a bow is 50 yards when there's guys that that are more than capable of doing that, you know? Right. Um, just because it doesn't fit for you doesn't mean that it's not okay for somebody else and their abilities. Uh, same thing with the rifles, right. you know. Not everybody needs to go out with a high rifle and try to shoot deer three, four, five hundred yards. Right. If you don't have the time in, don't even try it. <laughs> right. If you make yeah. that bad shot, then it was an unethical decision. Right. True. Yeah, your conscience has always been uh, a very clear indicator for me. I've I've gone out many deer seasons and be like, oh, I'm good out to forty, and then you get in the moment and you're like, ooh, man, forty. Maybe hopefully he comes into thirty, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, because you, you, your gut your gut tells you. You know if you're confident enough to make the shot because you you never think twice about it. You know. Yeah. Right. You hear that comment in your head like, ah, uh, you know, don't do stupid. And you do it anyways, that was a bad yeah. decision. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was the unethical shot. Right. right? <laughs> or if you get that, I, I think I can. I think I can do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably not a good idea. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Cool. Well, like I said, it sounds like, you. I mean, you put the time in. It sounds like you're just kind of preaching put the time in you're not you're, you're not building any special rounds or anything special it's just go out and shoot your gun if i'm shooting like that 243 or 30-06 late, it's uh hornaday the hornaday white chain i've had great luck with absolutely great luck group's good plenty of stopping power does everything it needs to do um i got a 458 socom and a 450 bushmaster that i like to use for Anything under 200, um, shoot black butterfly ammo. It's more of a custom load than just off-the-shelf stuff, but you don't have to reload and kill your own shells and, and go through all that process to kill deer at 400 yards. No. Not in today's firearms. If you're shooting 1,000, 15, 16, 2,000, you're going to start doing stuff a little bit different than the guy that goes in the store and buys them off the shelf. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. If you want to be efficient at that. Well, and you probably need to have a professional mount the scope. You know, you need to have a certain baseline of a, of a firearm as well. I mean, like there's, you know, like like you said, cheap equipment isn't going to do it. No. I mean, it's not impossible, but is it reliable to continue to do it? No. Right. Right. So you get out of your equipment what you put into it. Most of us don't need a 1,000-yard rifle. 
<laughs> no, no. Try try to make sure you're a little bit closer <laughs> to the game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but every now and then, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you got that deer that steps out, <laughs> and if you're prepared, you can make it happen. So, cool. Well, Ryan, um, at this this portion of the show, we usually like to have somebody tell us a story because that's what Chasing Tales is all about, where we, we celebrate the hunt. So are there any stories or that you would like to share on the podcast, maybe of like an epic hunt that you may have had? Uh, one. Yeah, in okay. particular. Yeah. My son's standing here looking at me. <laughs> uh, he's 12 this year. Uh, he first started hunting with me when he was eight. Seven, start tagging along, watching, uh, watch me shoot a couple deer with a bow, a couple with a gun. Uh, he sh- killed his first deer at nine. Uh, two years ago, we were, uh, clients were gone. It was, uh, last of, last weekend uh, in our rifle season in November. Uh, we get in a nice little double stand over a, a standing cornfield that would, of course, have been picked. Uh, cold. He was cold. He wasn't real happy. Uh, <laughs> evening, right before dark, nice eight point comes out. 210 yards. He's nine years old. And we had shot a lot at home at 200, and he was solid. He was good. Deer comes out. He waits. He was patient about it. Uh, camera's rolling. Everything got on, on video. Uh, he shoots it at 210, drops the deer. We go get it. Heart shot, absolutely perfect. Uh, a wow. Two and a half year old eight point. He was a nice, nice deer for his. This this point was his second or third deer. Um, amazing shot for a nine year old kid. Yeah, that is incredible. Yeah, he's pumped. It's it was his biggest deer yet. So we bring it back. He still has a doe tag. The next evening, we go to the same stand. Three does come out of the same trail. She's standing in the exact same spot as the buck was. And I told him, I said, you did it last night, do it again. He squeezes the trigger, she hits the ground. We go get the doe, bring her back home, still have the heart from the buck the night before, have the heart from the doe, and both of them have been shot within a quarter inch of the same spot. At 210 yards with a nine-year-old boy. Oh, wow. That's incredible. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a proud moment. That's a proud dad moment right there. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I bet you were like, like beaming from end to end. How many people did you call and tell that story to? I think everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, like seven thousand that followed us on social media found out real quick. <laughs> right. Yeah, I posted the uh, due to the gas station. Yeah, I got a video of both of them, the Bucky and the Doe. So I had them both on film. Oh yeah, that's actually in the exact same spot, and it was. I was more pumped about the Doe, like. That wasn't an accident. You did that twice, man. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's that's great, man. Not not a big buck story, but a proud dad story. Oh yeah, we get all kinds of stories. Uh, A lot of like first deer stories and things like that. So it's kind of funny what uh, people choose to talk about when they talk about hunting. But it all it all seems to bring a smile to everybody's face and everything. It's probably uh, one of their most profound hunting moments is the first one that comes up you know yeah that's what it worked yeah, for me for sure well i want to i want to piggyback on the question uh or piggyback on the story time but also with a question and that is 
you, Indiana seems like it's got a diversity of habitat. It's got a diversity of opportunities for hunting. What do you think uh, people who are hunting Indiana could do differently to increase their success that's unique to Indiana? Is there something that people overlook and and, and could become better uh, uh, deer hunters there in your home state? Well, yeah, we, we can all get better. Uh, I don't know that I could say one particular thing. Um I think we're all, you know, majority of us are getting on board with the management program. And, um, I don't know, everybody hunts for different reasons. Uh, it gets different things out of it. Um, my advice to everybody in Indiana, I'd say quit shooting as many does, you know, shoot a couple to, okay. to feed your family and let the rest go. Um, I don't really have much for you. <laughs> <laughs> that works yeah, right there, that's, man. That's, that, that's fine. You stumped me on that yeah. one. That's a tip. <laughs> I don't want to give Chase will tell you that I take I take pride in, in stumping people with that question. So. Yeah, exactly. that's 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 yeah. Nice. Uh well before we close it out, uh why don't you I know you kinda mentioned it before, why don't you kinda tell everybody uh how they can find you on social media or the internet? Uh you can find find us on the internet at wildsideoutdooradventures.com dot com and wild side outdoor adventures on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome. All right. Dude, Ryan, I want to thank you for coming on the show, dude. If you'll hang on one second, I'm going to close this out, and uh, we want to just chat with you briefly afterwards. Sounds good. Guys, thank you so much. I put a call to action out there last time to leave rating reviews, and we've started to see those come in. I appreciate that so much. Continue to tell people about Chase and Tales so we can grow this via word of mouth, and we can spread these stories and these uh, these perspectives and insights all over to everybody who, who downloads podcasts uh, and listens to, to you know hunting content. So tell a friend about the podcast, leave a rating review, and until next time, get outside and enjoy the great outdoors.